if I had to guess in like 2017, 2016, 2015, incentives were kind of on the way out. There was good governance reforms, there's pumping the brakes. I thought, wow, this is you know, there's going to be some good governance reforms, and boy, was I wrong. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my co-host, rugby fan, bona fide fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, uh, welcome back stateside after your uh, maiden, or I shouldn't say maiden, but your intrepid voyage uh, to the United Kingdom. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I am proudly wearing my Scotland rugby hoodie that I, I picked up there. It was such an amazing trip. I, we could spend a whole episode of me talking about it, which I'm sure everyone would love. But <laughs> um, I think the highlight of the trip was uh, through a story I can probably tell another time. Uh, we, My husband is friends with the marketing director for the Scotland rugby team. And so we got free tickets to go and we told them that we were coming. Uh, but the day before, that Friday before, we got to go see a practice and it was only open to special people and then also us. <laughs> um, and the, 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 so we got to like go through the, the, the player's tunnel, which was really neat. We could stand on the not as nice turf on the sidelines on the field. And then uh, all the players came up afterwards and we shook hands. They signed the ball that my we're now proudly displaying on our on our fireplace mantle. So it was like, uh, while I'm a, a general fan of the team, my husband is like a super fan. He knows everybody. He was completely beside himself with, with glee during this entire experience. I feel like that was almost as fun to watch as, as getting to, to shake all their hands. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. What a wonderful experience. And I don't know that rugby culture here <clears throat> is as appreciated maybe as it as it should be. Even if you're not a fan mm-hmm. of the game, there's a, there's a lot going on around it that people can latch on to. Well, welcome back. And, and we'll once again get to the uh, wonderful world of state and local public finance, which I suppose <laughs> is tangentially related to, to rugby if you really want it to be. Uh, but we're, uh, we're talking today about tax incentives. And it's certainly a topic of perennial interest across uh, all state and local government, but especially those of us in the finance space, given just how much public money often gets tied up in tax incentives, uh, especially at the state level. And we've, you know, we're talking about this topic today because it, it's obviously something that's kind of always on our radar, but there have been uh, a few in the kind of state and local public finance conversation, I guess you could say, some some recent discussion given uh, the, the five-year anniversary, so to speak, of the launching of Amazon's uh, HQ2 competition. And that at the time seemed like kind of the high watermark for the, this model of tax preferences where we had state and local governments bidding against one another, offering up, uh, in some cases, billions of dollars worth of incentives to uh, have Amazon or whomever it is locate within their borders. Um, I remember at the time that that the HQ2 competition was was launched. And again, for anybody who, who doesn't remember, this was Amazon very publicly announced that they were going to open a second headquarters outside of Seattle. And 
was open for business and took bids from hundreds of communities, eventually whittled the list down to 20 and then had kind of a second round of competition before ultimately deciding that it was going to land primarily in uh, Northern Virginia and at the time in New York City, but eventually not in New York City. Uh, and again, here we are now, after all of that, trying to still understand exactly how that unfolded. But I remember at the time doing a, a little bit of research on some of the incentive packages that were being offered up and getting at the question of whether the communities offering them up could afford to to offer what they were planning to to offer. And you had, in many cases, um, some pretty financially distressed or at least financially struggling communities offering tax incentive packages that seemed to be well beyond what they could afford, for better or for worse. So it really brings out this this very interesting instinct in a lot of uh, elected officials. And uh, that's a, the, the big part of what we want to focus on today. We're fortunate to have with us a little bit later on, Professor Nate Jensen from the University of Texas at Austin, who has been looking at these issues for a long time, written uh, several really engaging books and articles and lots of popular commentary on the tax incentive game as it's played at the state and local level. Liz, you're no stranger to this space yourself, um, having reported on this and, and talked about it for years. When you kind of look back on the recent past and where we are today, what's top of mind for you? Yeah, I love that we're doing this at like the, the five-year retrospective. It, there's so much to say about incentives. And I think my reporting has focused a lot on, um, you know, do they work? And to be able to answer that question, uh, you need to look at the numbers and and to evaluate what it is that you thought was going to happen or what the company promised and then what actually happened. And I think that step is something that previously, uh, certainly five, six, seven years ago when I was really doing a lot of reporting on this stuff, it wasn't, it was not really common at all for governments to do that. One place that was different though was Washington State. And that's, you know, I've, I've interviewed you back then about, about stuff that Washington State did. And I think I even, I wrote a story at Governing that among other things kind of pointed to Washington State's practice and, and how it was a, a potential model that other states could follow in terms of, in terms of looking at, at job production or, or tax returns and that kind of thing. That's something that I really think about a lot is, is that evaluation component. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's really, really important. The, the Washington State model, for anyone who's unfamiliar, which is now a model that's been, I think, replicated at, to varying degrees in different places, treats tax incentives from a performance audit standpoint. So they have their legislative auditor, the roughly the equivalent of like the Congressional Budget Office, albeit for the state legislature, go in and, and evaluate whether tax incentives are meeting their stated policy objective. And so they go in and they'll say, the law says that this tax preference is designed, or the, what they call tax preferences, incentives, you know, pick your word, uh, is this, this program was designed to uh, bolster economic development in rural areas. It, what is the evidence that says that it's doing that? And if there is evidence that says it's doing that, then there's a recommendation made to the legislature to either continue that preference, uh, maybe change it, modify it a little bit, or in some cases, if there's evidence that it's not doing what it was intended to do, the legislative order will recommend ending it or or allowing it to expire or whatever it might be. And there's a whole process. There's a citizen oversight committee. There's there's a bunch of different mechanics that are involved in that process. But it does it treats this question of incentives as to your to your point about effectiveness and and meeting objectives. 
going back to the root, asking what is it that the legislature was trying to do? And is there evidence that this is or is not doing this? The challenging part is, as you may not think about with that is, in so many cases, it's not altogether clear what these incentives were designed to do. There is no stated policy preference, or if there is, it's very vague or very ambiguous. And so the legislature is then asked to go back and you know clarify its its perspective. And that's very valuable. It's very important to do, uh, but it's definitely an ongoing evolution. And Washington State's been doing this now since 2006. You can, in fact, ask some of these tough questions without calling into question whether incentives are a good idea generally. You're right. It's a, it's a really challenging and interesting question, but a question that's really, really important to ask, as it seems that these questions about tax incentives aren't going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> no, they're not. So can't beat them to value with them. <laughs> Pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Professor Nate Jensen from the University of Texas at Austin, an expert on all things tax incentives and quite literally wrote the book on why and how state and local tax incentives work. Pleasure to have you here with us on the Public Money Pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Nathan, you've been a go-to source of mine for a years now on on tax incentives it's like every time a tax incentive story comes up comes up for me to write especially in my governing days it was like oh gotta send an email um i guess for me personally i'm kind of curious how did you get into this in the first place what drew you to to studying tax incentives yeah i mean i i guess it, it is a weird route that i started studying foreign direct investments so studying the politics of outward investment from the U.S. or from developed countries and how they interact with politics, whether it's bribery and corruption or political risk, Venezuela expropriating investment. So that was my starting point. But my first job was in St. Louis um, at Washington University in St. Louis. And I was following the news and and I was following the Kansas City economic border war. So and it was basically in my backyard, that's something similar to what I was looking at, you know, firm strategies for location and government strategies for attracting them. And I just thought, wow, this is wild. There are literally companies jumping back and forth across the Kansas and Missouri border, just a couple miles apart, moving down the road. You know this story. I actually, you know, as familiar as I was with economic development, it was, it was still pretty mind blowing that you basically have a shifting of the location of companies without the movement of companies. And I think the most shocking thing for me is what everyone knew it. And the politicians were still at ribbon cutting ceremonies, announcing new jobs in their community. And I think that really started me thinking, wow, this is not just, you know, expose kind of let me talk about what's going on or how many other places, but to understand what leads politicians particularly to still offer tax incentives or economic development policies, even when they know they don't really work, right? In that case, you're just shifting a company just a mile or two across the border. So yeah, that's the starting point. And then it just kind of blew up from from there. And now it takes up most of my research agenda is now focusing on tax incentives. <laughs> I think that that is a particularly wild um, case to draw you in. I mean, I've, I like that Kansas City sits right on the line and that you can have a company get all kinds of money just to move a couple of miles, as you put it. I mean, it's 
and 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 the fact that there i think there there's been cases where they've come close to a truce and then some some pub, some public official has has backed out at the last minute or or decided not to not to go ahead because they see some opportunity for themselves and i find that like a, a really interesting example what what is there anything comparable <laughs> that you found to that I mean, I think the sad story is that it's everywhere. You know, I'm in Austin and many of the northern suburbs pride themselves at attracting new investment, uh, but it's often a relocation just from your community next door. So we see this over and over, you know, Maryland and Virginia, right, and and wars for companies. Um, it's, you know, one of our biggest competitors in Texas is Louisiana, and this is for oil and gas, literally on the same pipeline. And they say, well, we could, you know, have a petrochemical facility in this half or this half. So it's not even just about hard physical borders, but the idea that companies, or sorry, politicians are willing to kind of shamelessly, you know, accept companies from another location, even if they know there's no new jobs. In some cases, they're, you know, the workers are going to fly in from another location. So they're not really providing you know, the residents with, with new jobs. So yeah, sadly, I think this is probably more common, this story <laughs> of economic development than not. You can see this over and over. Amazon HQ2, Liz, which we talked about a ton back in 2017, there were suburbs in the Dallas area competing against each other, putting competing offers for Amazon HQ2, even though, you know, Amazon's going to employ across the whole region. So yeah, there's, there's so many examples we could pull up. So I know one of the Key takeaways from a lot of your work <clears throat> is that tax incentives are, you know, as you like to put them, bad policy but good politics. What are some of those political benefits? You know, what, what does your work tell us about what elected officials are getting out of this? Because clearly, it's something because they keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, the the most striking finding in our work, and this is with my co-author Eddie Molesky, I should give full credit uh, as well. You know, we did a number of survey experiments. So we did surveys of voters with hypothetical investments, hypothetical incentives across multiple time periods. We also did this in Canada and the United Kingdom. And what's particularly interesting is that voters seem to not only think these incentives work, but they're willing to reward politicians for using them. And our big finding was that, you know, an investment that shows up in Detroit it's hard for the mayor or the governor to take credit. Well, they're there for geography. They're there because of supply chains. They're there for any host of reasons. But if you're the one who brokered an incentive deal, that you're at a ribbon-cutting ceremony and the, and the firm literally thanks you, right? That these aren't hidden incentives. These are very public announcements of the incentives. And our work finds that voters, sure enough, reward you more if you gave an incentive for attracting a company. We also found, and this may be explains Amazon HQ2. Again, I'm, I'm not sure how dated that reference is now, but when every city, many cities that had no chance put in big offers for Amazon's second headquarters, you know, our research suggests like this is a great way to minimize blame as well. Even if you know you're going to lose, there's no downside. And if anything, you can show you put in full effort. Um, so that's our work. You know, our work focuses, focuses on the on the public side, but I also think I've become more and more convinced over time also the special interest argument as well. 
that you have not only the public supportive, but real estates and sometimes unions, although it, it depends on the industry. You get this big coalition. Chambers of Commerce love these incentive programs. So you have this really oversized coalition with almost no opposition. And that that's, I think, another important point. So a politician isn't going to see a whole lot of blowback for pushing one of these programs. And you're going to get some public credit and you're going to get some campaign contributions or at least support of, of some industries. Are there incent tax incentives that do work? I mean, we know if you're a homeowner, you know about the that tax uh, break that you get, the homeowner's discount. Are there other ones that in your mind are good policy? They do what they are supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, I think you could just broaden and say, you know, one reason politicians give tax incentives is it's the easiest thing to give, right? So that is the easiest off and off the books, right? It depends, again, uh, on your reporting. But at least historically, you know, you could offer a tax incentive in a way you couldn't offer a cash grant, right? You actually had to budget for it. You had to reveal. So, so the point is like that form of economic development program or policy is in some sense the politically most efficient way to offer incentives. But often there's better ways to do it, right? So making incentives more upfront and more cash-based um, are actually, again, if you're going to give an incentive for a relocation, it's better to give an upfront incentive, again, with clawbacks, you know, some protections, rather than 10 or 20-year or 30-year tax mm-hmm. abatements. So maybe, Liz, that's like still answering in the negative. <laughs> on the positive, you know, focusing on small business, is always a much more efficient way to focus on economic development. Um, focusing on, you know, kind of industries that are most mobile, but also just thinking less about just let's land some businesses and what's missing. And then, you know, the city of Austin is a good example. We get a lot of incentives for the creative industries. So anything from small theaters to really small film productions, uh, music. And I think the idea is that there's a market failure, right? That the idea that we really want this lively artistic scene in Austin, but we're not willing to pay the ticket prices for them to stay centrally located. So how do we as a community support the arts? And I, so I think these very narrowly focused programs have a much better track record than, hey, here's our state jobs program. So I don't know, I guess that's maybe still sounding on the negative, but, but there aren't too many to be perfectly honest to love at least on the business side. Now, again, if we're talking about individual-focused tax incentives, that's something I don't directly research. My gut is there's a really wide variation with some of them that are particularly good and some of them that are particularly bad. Like the mortgage interest deduction is actually highly criticized, where some of the earned income tax credits or child tax credits seem to do a very, very good job at what their their goal is. You mentioned clawbacks. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the recent experience with that. It seemed like there was a a period there where there was a lot more attention on that and maybe a little more willingness on the part of companies to accept that clawbacks might be a part of what comes with the incentives that they have. And in in some cases, even we heard stories of, of businesses saying to state governments, we don't have a problem with clawbacks. In fact, go ahead and offer one because if you don't, we're doing business in states that do require them. And by not having one, you're giving us an incentive to move jobs to other states where we have to be, quote, creating jobs. And so you've now kind of created this this strange strategic situation. 
what's the from your vantage the recent experience with that that whole notion of there being that type of accountability coming from state and local governments yeah you know i think it's actually rare to see newer programs without some sort of clawback um or they're institutionalized in a way that you know some incentives might be based on capital invested and it's a tax incentive. So automatically, right, if you don't invest, you don't get the tax incentive. But, you know, many programs have job creation requirements and there's clawbacks. I think it's, you know, getting to the point where it's rare that there's not a nominal clawback, that at least it's written that if you do not pay back, blah, blah, blah. But the devil's always in the details. And I think the details are two things. One, you know, how do you write the clawback provisions? So in some cases, um, you only have to create 70% of the jobs that you promise, which gives a lot of wiggle room for companies. Um, others are not automatic. So the actual, you know, are you actually required to have a clawback if they don't perform? Um, some actually have companies self-report jobs and employment, and that's the clawbacks are based on that. So I think, you know, it's you see it on paper in almost every location. But the problem is that are they enforced? We did a, a project in Texas uh, where we put a public records request in for our major incentive program, Texas Enterprise Fund, a big cash grant, grant program. Uh, I think $295 million was the biggest. You know, it varies every legislative session how big it is. But, you know, almost $300 million in discretionary grants with clawbacks. Our public records request uh, revealed two things. One, companies will challenge your public records request. Right? That's the first thing we learned. But secondly, actually, the companies that challenged, there was a systematic pattern. And a lot of the companies that challenged our request actually had amendments to their contracts. So they changed the contract. So they then complied. So there was no formal clawback because the state gave two extra day, two extra years to create jobs. In one case, they let them put the CEO's salary on the incentive to up the up the average wage. So you have a wage floor, right? But it's an average wage; it's a mean wage. So if you could put your high paid executives on, then all of a sudden that wage comes up. So we saw these sometimes the day that a company was about to have a clawback kick in. So the point is, you know, if you could just amend these contracts, and some states actually do this pretty publicly, Michigan has amendments to their contracts. So you really can't fail. You know, politicians don't want these to fail. Sometimes a company really honestly tried and COVID hits or something happened where they couldn't comply and the, and the community wants to give some, you know, ability for them to still comply. But in many other cases, the, you know, they just oversold how many jobs they were going to create. And the politician said that job number, and it's in nobody's interest to to hold the company's feet to the fire, unless you get some incumbent who gets thrown out by a challenger, and the challenger maybe will enforce this. Um, but even that is pretty rare to see. Nate, you alluded uh, to Amazon HQ2 a little bit ago, and I think that that is probably the highest profile example of the, the sort of mega project phenomenon, which seems to go hand in hand with uh, the kinds of incentives that we're talking about here. Um, if you tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing recently in that in that mega project space, there still seem to be some good examples out there. And is there, is there more or less of that happening than maybe pre-Amazon HQ2? And to what extent are incentives part of that? Or is there a unique kind of dynamic with incentives that makes mega projects different from a lot of the kinds of incentives that we've been talking about so far. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think we don't fully have great data to say anything definitively. But if you look back, you, know, you go to the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and you see an increasing use of the dollars of incentives. But that's not that lots of companies are getting incentives, that there are more and more incentives for you know these mega deals. So think of a BMW plant in South Carolina or a t- Toyota plant in Tennessee, right? We could think about these major, major production facilities. Auto is just a good example, but, but there's many of these different types of programs. And what you see is more and more focus of economic development dollars on these projects. And often, you know, states and cities becoming creative in how they give these incentives. So there was a turn at one point where states, North Carolina's Amazon HQ2 offer was basically calculating how much those employees would pay in taxes. So yes, you're going to have about 50,000 employees coming. This is how much we think they would pay in the income tax. That's the dollar amount we're going to refund you per year um, to the company. Again, this is not individuals getting a tax break, right? It is it is essentially a, you know, a way of the state making a decision on a number of incentives. How much money will they give? And they're anchoring it in the employees' taxes. The, po- the point is that we see this like, Auto plants always got incentives, but all of a sudden you start to see these new ways in which incentives are being offered. So that's there's some of that, right? Some change, but I think the real big change just in the last couple of years is actually the restructuring of the auto industry, the explosion of EVs and battery plants. Um, I've talked to a couple of state economic developers and they said the number of $1 billion investment deals out there is mind boggling. Like, you know, a company like Panasonic is shopping for a battery plant, or, you know, Tesla's thinking about another engineering facility, which just went to California, right? So I think there's the, the zone has been flooded with projects. Um, some of this because of a structural change, new investment in EVs, but also semiconductors. That's the other big one. We see a number of really, really large semiconductor fab announcements or their supply chains, and they are getting massive incentives from the state and local level. Micron has a deal in upstate New York, Samsung here in Texas. We've got Arizona, a bunch of these. I could go on and on, Um, but it's hard to say what happened exactly. The state, um, the federal government passed the U.S. CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. There is a little concern that these acts in some way has triggered a subsidy war at the local level, that these, you know, we're incentivizing a reshoring of EVs in the US, electric vehicle production or supply chains. And what that means is then every state is competing against each other for it. And that's that I think is the most, if there's like one telling data point right now, it's just looking at the number of kind of EV or related EV projects and their incentive deals are, are massive. And then the semiconductors, but there aren't as many of them. They're more concentrated in a couple locations where EV production is all around the the United States, um, everything from Tesla to, to batteries to some upstarts like Rivian and Canoe, um, all over all over the United States. Yeah, so it's a, a wild. I mean, it's in some sense it's exciting time. I'm sure as an economic developer, there's this chance to get on the ground floor of these new investments, but they are at really really steep incentive prices. So yeah, that that deal Micron uh, New York made with Micron was for 
more than $6 billion in tax breaks and infrastructure improvements, and apparently the third largest subsidy deal in U.S. history. So that is <laughs> that is not small. Yeah, this, the scale piece of it really is astounding. And I think, and I think if I remember right, you've written about this a little bit. There's there's kind of a, a just luck element to this too. If you're DeSoto and Panasonic is coming and you're able to use that as the catalyst for a, a larger industrial redevelopment, which is exactly what it will be in this particular project, and you get a lot of spinoff and you get a lot of those kind of synergies that happen, that's a matter of having that type of land in that moment with the right incentives and what might seem like a kind of strategic forward looking thing actually turns out to be you were in the right place at the right time, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but again, really raises the question of whether you can make good policy or it's just a matter of getting lucky. Yeah. I mean, the Panasonic one is a wild, I thought you were going to go another direction with this because it's notorious in the economic development space as one of the most non-transparent programs that we've seen where legislators voted on this Panasonic deal without knowing the company name. And, and it's wild that there's also some non-disclosure agreements that even our evaluation of the program project will be shielded. So essentially it was the, the least transparent. And I just always ask myself, you know, what if this was a Chinese company, right? Because there's backlash and discussions about national security. What if it's a German or Canadian company? What if it's a company that, you know, has a bad reputation in terms of economic development? It was Foxcom or if it's a good, great reputation. So the fact that there wasn't even this upfront discussion, even with the company name, makes me really skeptical that it's this program. I think you're exactly right. Like these things can break the right direction and, and we're really hopeful it does for communities. But the fact that you're tying at least one hand, if not two behind your back by not having an open public discussion, you're shooting yourself in the foot, right? You actually want to reveal the company and the technology as much as you can so local unions and environmentalists and employers and real estate can all be in that discussion right away, right? How do we plan for this versus plopping down? The other crazy thing is Panasonic has, I think that deal has five of their suppliers grandfathered into incentives as well. So automatically, again, the same problem, right? What if these are really low wage jobs or high wage jobs, right? You want to be able to differentiate. What if it's a local supplier that uses a lot of water and power and that's going to put a drain on the grid versus something that's not right and again if you're going to use this kind of industrial policy you want to have that full information to make these hard choices yeah so the panasonic one was you know i had journalists ask me do you know the company name and we were all trading notes and we were all guessing what we thought it was um, we just guessed something related to ev because that's what everything seemed to be or some people thought manufactured homes, right? It was literally had no idea what, what project this was. I don't remember hearing about non-disclosure agreements, at least that much, like five, 10-ish years ago. Is, is this just my bad memory or is this something that is happening more? This is why you don't hear about it. It's a non-disclosure agreement list. <laughs> they're, they're purposely hiding it. You know, I think, um, I think that there has been... Honestly, the, the one dirty secret is so much of this industry is driven by the economic development consultancy industry. So you have these consultants, and I think there's nowhere that's more obvious than film incentives, where you see state after state enacting essentially the same programs, 
And that's partially because they're lobbied and, and provided information on what the structure of the program should look like. And I think there is more and more a move within this industry of using non-disclosure agreements. And to be honest, I'm not sure if the politicians aren't in on it as well, right? It's not clear that the NDAs hurt them. If anything, it helps them. Or they could say, we had to sign an NDA. I'm, I'm sorry about this. So I, you know, it's hard to say whether there's been an increase but it's been more on the radar after Amazon HQ2 when their second round, Amazon had kind of cut down to 20 finalists, which is still a really large number. And then they really and they had a second set of NDAs um, where there's essentially they were trying to get almost no discussion after getting all that free press up front. It's turned critical. Um, and I think they tried to clamp it down. So, so yeah, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure other than I know a few communities won't offer NDAs and there's a push that if we could get cities or States to agree to not offer NDAs, then everyone would be on the same footing. But that's again, a hard, hard lift. I want one other question, Nate, and, and we don't have to go here if it's not something you uh, want to get into, but we have seen efforts in some states and localities to try to do a better job of evaluating the return on investment, so to speak, for for tax incentives. Washington State, for instance, has a citizens commission for performance assessment of tax preferences where they, you know, the, the state legislative auditor goes in and and looks at you know, essentially are these programs are doing what they intended to do in a very broad sense. Sometimes, as we've talked about, it's a little unclear what they were intended to do sometimes deliberately vague, uh, but they have done some work to try to understand, especially some of those kind of smaller, small business focused sorts of incentives. Are they doing what they were intended to do? Are the right people getting the support? Is it actually affecting decision-making? You know, in your experience, is that the kind of thing that more states and localities ought to consider investing in? Or is there a different way to think about accountability when we, when we talk about incentives writ large? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two mechanisms and you, and you hope states do both of them. One is an audit. So they literally do, you know, like an audit. Did the companies actually invest as much as they promised they would invest in exchange for their incentive dollars? Did the agency collect the proper data? Do they have all the contracts? So essentially it is, you know, not a judgment call whether the program is good or bad. But I think more important is what you're alluding to, Justin, is evaluations. So even if companies are playing by the rules, is, is this a good program? Does it you know, provide value for, for jobs? Does it pay itself back, especially for the incentives that are capital intensive? You're literally trying to generate tax revenues. So these evaluations, and I'll give the Pew folks a lot of credit here. Pew has been really active helping states provide evaluations. And there are some great state evaluations. Virginia does a great job. Uh, Maryland's got some great evaluations. There's limits, though, and, and the, I think there are a couple of limits. A bunch of the evaluations, there's no actual goal stated in some of this legislation. And some programs, especially tax incentives, can be confidential data. So Georgia's film incentives, how do you do an evaluation if you can't actually get access to data because it's confidential tax data? Um, so that's the one of the limitations. But even for the studies that are really well done. There's a bunch of film incentive studies. I think Pennsylvania is the one who they actually have an appendix of all the other film incentive study evaluations, state audits or evaluations that try to look at the cost and benefits of film incentives. And the average was something like 
most states lose 90 cents on the dollar with their film incentives. So you see this, right? You see 10 states, 12, 14 states with these negative evaluations. Yet we still see this wave of a bunch of states re-upping their film incentives. Well, who wouldn't want movie stars in their state, right? In their defense. <laughs> it's mostly commercials, though. You have to remember that. Who wouldn't mm. want a Campbell's, you know, chunky commercial? <laughs> I'm kind of. I'm glad we got into the film incentives thing because I keep seeing headlines about that, like recently. And the sports. Yeah. I really thought if you had to, if I had to guess in like 2017, 2016, 2015, incentives were kind of on the way out. Maybe the way out is the wrong way to put it, but but there was good governance reforms. There's pumping the brakes. I thought, wow, this is, you know, there's going to be some good governance reforms. And boy, was I wrong. Things have, if anything, accelerated. Now, I don't know if this is like a point to, to bring up something, but you know, what I think a lot of folks in my space are worried about is a combination of COVID and a new focus on industrial policy, which I think states should clearly have done something during COVID, especially to help small businesses and individuals. And same thing with industrial policy, the idea that states can be more proactive. Countries, the European Union was always known as like one of the best examples how, how states are limited in how they can compete with each other through state aid rules. So rules on how much incentives you can give. European Union is now debating lifting these rules and changing these rules because of the Inflation Reduction Act. They're worried that they are losing EV or battery investments because the US just can pay a whole lot more. So if anything, again, like that was the example. We were telling everyone, be more like Europe, and now Europe is gonna be more like the United States. And this is by no means meant to be partisan. The Inflation Reduction Act is an example, which was a you know, all Democrat, no Republican, but the US CHIPS Act has a similar issue, which is a bipartisan act. The idea that, we're going to do industrial policy, but in a way with the least, efe- least efficient mechanisms, tax incentives, with the least amount of guardrails. So I think, like, to me, like, that's going to be the big story five years from now. We're going to look back and say, oh, my God, we just went guns blazing. We had so much opportunity to reshape our economy because there was so much new investment. And we did it without labor standards or clawbacks. And we did it with non-disclosure agreements. What were we thinking? And that's that's my big worry. I hope it works out for these communities. Um, but I think we haven't learned the lesson of tax incentives when done poorly can be disastrous. Was that too negative of an ending? You could edit that out. If that makes <laughs> no, no. It, if it's true, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, Professor Nate Jensen, Pleasure to talk to you about tax incentives and uh, always a pleasure to have a chance to talk to a fellow Wisconsinite and Packer shareholder. Thanks so much for taking the time to join the Public Money Pod. Yeah, thanks for having me and go Packers. Well, that was a lot of fun talking with Nathan about tax incentives and, and all manner of things. Um, he's a wealth of information on that stuff, and I appreciated hearing from him. For this week's Rip from the Headlines, I think as we've alluded to previously, we're going to talk about the Amazon HQ2 update. Bloomberg's City Lab had a story recently uh, by Sarah Holder and Linda Poon. It's called As Amazon's HQ2 Stalls, Incentives Have Two. 
So Virginia and the city of Arlington promised Amazon hundreds of millions of dollars in exchange for economic transformation. But uh, like in a lot of places, construction is delayed. The pandemic kind of hit the pause button on everything going on there. And now Amazon is also laying off a bunch of employees. So what the the story kind of lays out like a, a visual of what's going on in this area called Crystal City, which is in uh, it's on a rail line in Northern Virginia. So there has been some development. There's been some smaller buildings built, but the headquarters itself actually still is just a construction site. The total package, I think that Arlington, sorry, not city, Arlington County and uh, the state of Virginia (laughs) offered was um, a total of around $2 billion in incentives and value. And over a course of, I think it was like something like 10 years. But which was astronomical at the time, as we we talked about before, we thought that like all of the attention on Amazon and that its HQ2 search would be the the ultimate peak of incentives, <laughs> insanity. But w- what happened and when Arlington County slash Virginia, Northern Virginia was picked, people were like, well, of course they're going to go there. It's close to Washington, D.C. It, it has all of the pieces that you, anyone would want anyway. And that, again, speaks to the overall criticism of offering these uh, moving incentives. So, for example, what's going on is there were clauses tied to these incentives. And because development isn't going along as quickly as Amazon thought it would, there aren't as many jobs there, et cetera, et cetera, it's not getting as much back in incentives. For example, the county offered Amazon the equivalent of about $23 million in tax incentives to locate there, with payments contingent on an increase to the county's transient occupant tax collected from hotels and short-term rentals, okay? So with travel still depressed by the pandemic, that growth, that transient occupancy tax has not been realized. So in fiscal year 2022, the tax brought in 10 million less than its pre-pandemic baseline of around 25 million. So being contingent on that tax, uh, Amazon has not yet gotten its its incentives to locate there. So things like that, as critical as, in, as of incentives as as anybody can be, what I'm getting from the story is it's more and more way more common now to offer these big incentives, but to tie them to something. There is a there's a contingency. There's a clawback. There's you have to do this first kind of thing. And that I I think was really really important to to do in a in a mega deal like this in any mega deal. Um, I see this actually as as a as at least a not negative story about about what's going on with with the Amazon HQ too. Um, so yeah, so Justin, what what were some of the things that that you thought of when you when you saw this? Yeah, I'm glad we have a, a chance to talk about. It. And I agree completely that it's a at a minimum not negative and, and maybe even creeping up on on a, a good news story for lack of a better word. Part of the evolution that we've seen in tax preferences and tax incentives is a willingness on the part of a lot of big companies, you know, to recognize that there's there's probably it's probably in some ways a win win or at least there's some risk sharing that can be done when they include these kinds of contingencies or or clawbacks or whatever it might be there's a i think it's sometimes a misnomer out there that the companies are out to sort of extract gains from communities and then leave there's undoubtedly some of that that goes on but 
In the case of an employer like Amazon, which is so human capital intensive and really needs access to the right kind of people in the right kind of place at the right kind of time, they need to be in the community. They need the community to be successful if, if they're going to have the employment base to draw from to do the to do the work that that company wants. And so tying it to broader economic indicators like the lodging tax, like those kinds of you know, health indicators that suggest that the economy as a whole is is doing well, seems an imminently reasonable thing to do. And I think you are seeing more and more companies willing to to take on those kinds of of again risk sharing arrangements with with their local communities uh, because they they understand that there's very little to gain by extracting a bunch of of incentives and then running. Uh, when you're doing the kind of work that Amazon is doing, the reality is there's only a handful of places that you can go for a headquarters um, type of project, and you have to have a good relationship with that community. And so this is, I think, back in the day when we were doing, uh, as we talked about with Nate, automobile factories and and those kinds of long-term, big-picture uh, types of developments, it wasn't out of the question to have a 20- or 30-year arrangement. These days, if if you have a three to five year relatively stable economy, that's great. And you can hope for that. But we're now five years out. A lot has changed. A lot will continue to change. And these tax incentive programs need to, to be flexible enough to reflect the fact that there's going to be these kinds of changes. And that seems to be exactly what's happening here. Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. 